to CMIO Podcast, a show devoted to educating and informing those who are making healthcare easier for others. Whether you're involved with informatics, analytics, or new technologies that make the lives of our practicing clinicians better, this show is for you. My name is Dr. Mark Weissman. I'm a practicing physician and CMIO and the host of CMIO Podcast. Today, covering the news to know for the week of March 30th. So just a reminder that this show is not sponsored. It is done to help educate and inform and hopefully spread good knowledge about practical things that CMIOs are doing. And if you are a fan, supporter of the show, I would love for you to, number one, tell a friend about it. And number two, write to me and let's work together to get some ideas about how you're going to be on the show. I'm always looking for new presenters. We'll work together, come up with a couple of topics to talk about, and I promise to make you sound like a rock star on the other side of this. If you don't think this thing is so heavily edited because I stumble over my words all the time. So if you're afraid of coming on air, these things are not live and it's a lot of fun, I promise. So write to me. Uh, this week on tap, obviously, we're going to talk about coronavirus a little bit. Well, a lot, because that's what's all in the news and probably what you're all focusing on. I will touch on a few other topics just because, well, we're CMIOs and our day jobs haven't stopped. And we still have responsibilities about making sure the EMR is working well and uh, looking at new technologies and things like that. So I'll, of course, touch on some coronavirus stuff as well. So the first article I want to talk about comes out of Jamia, and this is their April issue, Electronic Health Records and Burnout, Time Spent on the Electronic Health Record After Hours and Message Volume Associated with Exhaustion but Not with Cynicism Among Primary Care Clinicians. And so this is interesting because you hear a lot that, oh, the EMR is the cause of burnout, but there's not a lot of proof, not a lot of data behind it. So some of these studies are coming out now kind of showing some link here that it's a contributor, at least, which we all suspected. But this is proof now, and the data is important. Time spent on documentation and time spent on EHRs at home were cited as key contributors to burnout in a, this is from a previous study, and they wanted to expand upon that and because that study was really just looking at in-basket messages and in this study they looked at in-basket messages and they also looked on time after hours or time on non-clinical days and so they're using this is a study on a group that was on epic and they're using the i guess it's called the pep report or the signal report which is measuring the amount of time that's a provider's in after hours. Now they define that as 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. We could argue whether that's the right time or not, but that's what they used in the study because that's what Epic has as a proprietary algorithm that they're using to measure provider efficiency. So I'll read you again a couple more lines here. The authors say in the objective part of the study, it's important to move beyond self-reported measures of EHR use. A more robust understanding is needed of the relationship between perceived and objective vendor-defined measures of EHR use, as well as the relationship between objectively measured EHR use and burnout. I agree. So the measures, they 
uh, did a survey using five item emotional exhaustion subscale and the five item cynicism subscale from the Maslach Burnout Inventory General Survey. I think that's a, a well validated tool at this point. Study was 72% female, which I think in primary care feels about right to me. About 10%, I think, were nurse practitioners or uh, physician assistants. So this is interesting. In terms of objective vendor-defined measures of EHR use at a full-time clinician level, clinicians spent an average of 116 minutes a week, which is 1.92 hours, in the EHR after hours on scheduled clinic days, and an additional 451 minutes, or 7.52 hours, on unscheduled clinic days. On average, clinicians handled 229 messages a week at a 1.0 clinical uh, FTE. So that's good numbers. Again, great for benchmarking. How are you doing this? If you're an Epic shop, you can take a look and see how your providers, how many hours they're spending on non-clinic days or after hours. and see if you measure up. This is an academic group, and so they, I don't know if they're seeing patients every 15 minutes, every 20 minutes, if they have interruptions from residents or what have you. So there, there could be a variety of reasons. So it may not be applicable broadly across the universe, but it gives you some idea. So there in the discussion section, they say it, collabor it corroborates a recent study that found that physicians were twice as likely to report burnout symptoms if they received an above average number of system generated in-basket messages that was greater than 114 per week. And our work makes a novel contribution relative to this study by looking at a broader array of measures over a longer period of time. We found that clinicians who spend more time in the EHR on scheduled days and, excuse me, on scheduled days after hours and those with a very high message volume are more likely to have high emotional exhaustion. The developers of the concept of burnout conceptualized exhaustion and cynicism as two manifestations of burnout, in which exhaustion reflects feeling overloaded by the emotional intensity of work, whereas cynicism or depersonalization is thought to be a coping mechanism in which individuals distance themselves emotionally from work or clients. Within this context, one might surmise that EHR use is resulting in clinicians who are overwhelmed by volume, but still engaged in their work. In other words, highly exhausted rather than cynical. If you add together the average amount of time spent after hours and time spent on unscheduled days, the total is almost 10 hours per week for FTE, which is quite close to what other studies have found. That's a significant burden. If you're doing 40 hours of clinical time a week and then 10 hours outside of that, and I bet you it's more because I don't consider 7 p.m. the time where it's after hours. Most of us would say somewhere probably closer to 4.30 or 5 o'clock, and you're probably putting at least another hour in that bracket. So you're probably up to 55, closer to 60 hours a week. And in primary care, that's, that's pretty hefty. Our conclusion 
uh, in the conclusion, they say, our study brings important empirical evidence to the widely asserted contribution of EHRs to clinician burnout. We found that two objective vendor-defined measures of EHR use, time spent after hours on the EHR and volume of in-basket messages are related to exhaustion. These measures are amenable to intervention by rethinking the division of EHR documentation across primary care teams. If you haven't explored this, in-basket messages is a tough thing to tackle. The question is how much of it needs to be done by the provider. And I have seen more with the EMR than I did when I was on a paper chart that there's more stuff that ends up in my in-basket than it should. It's just so easy for someone to click the forward button and, oh, now it's the doctor's problem. And I've gotten pretty good at, well, sending it right back to where it came from with, why don't you work this for a little bit and tell me how far you got with it. And if you can't solve it, then bring it to me. You don't want people just pushing their work onto the providers. Some providers are, how do I say this politely, control enthusiasts. And they want to be involved in every bit of the care process all over the place. If they can't effectively delegate and effectively manage their teams, they're going to drown it in basket just overload. Yes, there are, of course, messages that the provider has to handle. But if the staff can work them so that the provider only has to touch them once and then it's done, get all the appropriate information up front, it certainly can make the provider's lives a whole lot easier. And I'll get off my soapbox on that. Next article, another Jamie article, the impact of transitioning from availability of outside records within electronic health records to integration of local and outside records within electronic health records. So what they're talking about here is whether or not people are using the data from outside institutions and whether it's you have to click to somewhere else in the chart to go get that versus whether it's integrated in with the rest of your data. What they say here is that while there's been a substantial increase in health information exchange, levels of outside records used by frontline providers are low. They're using EPIC, this is UCSF, and they're measuring a change in outside record views after moving to the integration of that information on the chart review tab. And the results, there was a large increase in the level of outside record reviews. And in the discussion, they simply say, well, outside records were readily available before encounter integration. The simple step of clicking on a separate tab appears to have depressed use. And that feels right to me because I know my providers will not go looking elsewhere for information because it's not always easy to get to it. It's not just one click to another tab, in my opinion. It usually it's a series of clicks to try to navigate to where you need to get into the other record, find the lab test you're looking for, and may or may not be there. So integrating it into the health record, I think, is a very important piece of interoperability. All right, next. Let's start talking a little bit about coronavirus. So this is not a distinct article. It's just a brief summary of some of the discussions that have been going on in the AMDIS community. If you're not a member of this, I highly recommend it. AMDIS, A-M-D-I-S dot org. 
go there, become a member, and then click over to the community tab and go to login and login and subscribe to the listserv. Yes, in this day and age, we're still using listservs, but it has been phenomenal information sharing among CMIOs. If I really encourage you to be there, you can simply lurk and then chime in when you have something valuable to add. You'll recognize many of the names of the people who are responding. A bunch of them have been on the show. And these are really smart people saying, this is what we're doing or asking questions. Hey, what is what are others doing in terms of reporting around coronavirus so that their leaders have the right information? You don't have to reinvent the wheel here. Others are doing this. And if you're on the East Coast, uh, you can learn from the West Coast that got hit first about their experiences. So it's been a great tool. It started a lot around testing strategies and whether people were doing drive-by clinics or who was getting tested. And that was a great tool. We were all complaining about being short on test materials. Still are. Still aren't testing to the volume that we would like to, at least in our system. I'm sure others are facing the same thing. Lately, it's been more about the telehealth solutions. And once the government waved their magic wand and moved the regulatory issues out of the way, we are seeing a lot of discussions around, hey, what platforms are you using? What's working for you? What's not working? And just to give you a brief summary, a lot of us did not have integrated telehealth solutions in place ready to go. And that has to do a lot to do with the reimbursement for telehealth visits prior to all this. Many people were trying WebEx or Zoom. And what I personally have found, I believe others are finding, is that the rest of the world is using WebEx and Zoom as well because they moved all of their workers out of the office to their homes and they still need a collaboration platform. And these things are not healthcare specific, so they are getting huge volumes of requests for service. And they're having a hard time keeping up. We can't get into WebEx sometimes for our own collaboration meetings, forget about for patient care. And that has led many of us to start looking for alternative solutions. And there's a whole bunch of them out there. Join the listserv if you want to see those. conversations. Uh, you can also check out an article that I wrote in, this was in Health Tech Magazine. I talked a little bit about telehealth. We went from nothing to having a telehealth solution deployed and starting to see patients in under a week. It is possible to do it. And many of my colleagues have been successful with this as well. We started up live with WebExpert are also now transitioning to other platforms. I'll, I'll give you, there's, I give 10 tips for starting up your telehealth. I'll just go over three. Uh, the first one is to communicate broadly about the solution you're going to bring as early and as often as you can, because providers who aren't getting information will start to explore on their own. And they'll go with FaceTime, which has a limitation of the patient gets to see your phone number. Or they'll go with some free platform that may very well work, may not. Uh, you're not getting any customer support on some of these. So just be aware that your providers are going to go elsewhere if you don't provide them with information. The lack of information, they will go elsewhere. Next one, if you don't have an integration solution already with your EMR, don't let that stop you. Pick a freestanding vendor. Now is not the time to try to do the integration piece. It's pretty hard, at least with Epic, it's pretty hard. Maybe some of the other EMRs, it's easier. 
it's a multi-month process for doing a MyChart integration where the patient experience and the provider experience are awesome. The patient pretty much from MyChart with a single click is bringing up the doctor and starts the visit. And the doctor's got their, their patient schedule for the day and simply click on the camera and the patient pops up and you pull them out of the waiting room and you can start seeing them. Yeah, great, fantastic. And you just can't really start doing that right now. Go with a freestanding uh, platform and just start it. Work out the workflows and just get going. I think your patients really can't wait for an integrated solution. My last piece of advice is be prepared for connectivity issues and problems where patients cannot figure out the connection process or your staff can't figure out the connection process. We're experiencing close to a 20%, maybe up to 30% at times failure rate where we said we wanted to do a telehealth visit, the patient agreed, but we could not make the video visit happen and we fell back onto a pure telephone solution for them. Your medical assistants suddenly become support staff and they're not necessarily prepared to do that and not equipped to do that. It's probably not fair to have them do that. So have your workflow in place that if the video visit is not working, whether you're gonna try a second platform or just give up and go to the telephone, get the care done. And those are my three tips on telehealth. Some other conversations going on on AMDIS that I thought were really interesting, reporting metrics. Your operational leaders are going to wanna to know how many tests have been done, how many are still pending, what's the turnaround time on tests? How many are positive? How many are positive in the ambulatory setting versus in the hospital? How many patients are on ventilators, whether they have COVID or not, they need to keep count on the ventilators. How many ICU beds are currently available? What's the throughput time looking like in the emergency department? Are you starting to bottleneck? Those are some of the operational metrics. For a while, we were tracking hydroxychloroquine availability that does not seem to be as big an issue now we seem that the supply chain on that seems to have eased up the personal protective equipment is a big problem the number of masks we need in this country is huge and the price of masks went from 60 cents up to uh, each up to seven to eight dollars per mask and i hope the people who are gouging us that somewhere somehow that there is karma that comes around to reward them for their greediness. In a time of crisis, there is a phenomenal article on LinkedIn. If you look at my LinkedIn profile, I shared it. It came from uh, CHIO, and it describes how a nurse feels on the front lines where her nurse is digging, uh, the uh, mask is digging into her nose, and she's worried about bringing home disease to her family and just the emotional response. It's been an outpouring of response supporting these nurses, but we need the supplies and that's the message. And I'm excited to see a whole bunch of companies gearing up and getting into it, but we need these supplies now because the bandana is not the medical tool of choice for protecting yourself against coronavirus. What other tools and discussions have we seen uh, predictive analytic tools have been discussed quite a bit, particularly around mortality statistics. And SOFA is the tool that I've heard most often. Epic's now providing this in their foundation system, and that's SOFA. 
and it's an ICU metric looking at mortality. Others are using Apache, which is great, but I believe is still a manual calculation. And unless someone's automated it, it's, a, it's kind of tedious to do. Apache 4, I think they're up to. Uh, the other one is starting to think about what happens if we have to ration vents. And I guess in New York City, they're probably closer to this than anyone where you have to make a decision. You got a 90 year old and a four year old, 40 year old, and they both can't have a vent. You don't have enough. What do you do? Who's going to get that vent? And how do you triage and make that decision? I hope we never have to make that decision. I hope personally, I never have to make that extremely difficult. What's the value of one life over another? I can't even imagine. And then finally, I think something that's really important to keep in mind is that cyber attacks are on the rise. And the CMIOs on this list server talking about, hey, be careful. There are slime balls out there that are saying they're the Department of Health or your hospital leadership. Click on this link to catch the webinar that you have to watch on COVID-19. And when you click on that link, it's downloading malware. Inform your people to not click the links. We are only as good as our weakest link. You know someone's gonna click it, and the worst thing I think that could happen to us right now is to bring down our systems. I think going to paper is something that we may be forced to do due to volume, but I don't wanna be forced to do it because of a cyber attack. Moving on. So Trump signed the $2 trillion stimulus package. That's T, trillion, T, trillion and 100 billion of it will go to struggling hospitals. Interesting story in Healthcare Dive that says, hey, frontline primary care practices, they're not getting anything and their survival is at stake here. And so I don't think it's just primary care, although they're highlighting this in the article and we'll talk more about it. I'm worried about my surgical colleagues because they can't do elective cases yet and they still have staff to take care of unless they furloughed them, in which case the staff aren't getting paid and that's not terribly fair. So I think most people are trying to pay their staff and keep them on or find things for them to do. It's a great time to get up to speed on your electronic health record and do extra training, things like that. But I think in primary care, there was nothing in the stimulus that said, let's make sure primary care is doing okay. And here's just a quote from this is a clinic administrator and Autumn Road Clinic. Uh, we came in Monday morning, it was like a whole new world. All of a sudden, our patients are canceling their appointments. About Wednesday, we realized the finances are quickly failing. It was devastating. There's little chance of direct help from Congress as the latest Senate stimulus package that was passed late on Wednesday of last week didn't benchmark any funds for independent practices. Independent practices small and small businesses that have resisted selling to hospital despite years of rampant provider consolidation may already weathered various reimbursement cuts, disadvantages Medicare facility fees, costly EHR implementations, and more that left them with razor thin margins. Some of them are running month to month and they are going to be in a deficit this month and it's going to put a lot of pressure on them. The family practice, this is Vickery Family Medicine in Asheville, North Carolina, has seen its patient visits slashed in half. Now, telehealth will help fill the gap on some of that. Telehealth is supposed to reimburse at the same rate as an office visit. 
but that's for Medicare and the private insurers, many of them are signing up around this, but also some are saying that, hey, your overhead's not as high on a telehealth visit, therefore we can slash your rates. And that's gonna be trouble. And I think that's gonna be the big determinant as to whether or not telehealth continues after the crisis. It's gonna have to do with the reimbursement. I think telehealth will stay on. I don't see the government putting the genie back in the bottle on this one. But what they may very well do is cut the reimbursement and that could have very serious consequences for one, adoption, and number two, on the financial well-being of our providers. If there are serious cuts, they, have, they still have their brick and mortar overhead. That didn't go away. So I think they would turn off their telehealth and bring the patients back into the office if the government's not careful. How are we doing on time? All right. Let's do one more, and this one is a really interesting article. Uh, in healthcare IT news, technology lessons learned for temporary hospital deployments. And this one comes from Jason Hall, who's a US Air Force Colonel retired, March 26, 2020. Just gives his lessons learned. So just listen to a few lines from him. My experience in these situ situations has been instructive. I'm a retired USAF colonel and healthcare administrator with more than 24 years of experiencing running healthcare facilities around the globe. I have deployed five times to set up temporary healthcare facilities, which are called Expeditionary Medical Support Hospitals. I assume that's a MASH unit, if you're old enough to remember MASH, the TV show, uh, in remote locations, mostly in the Middle East. Number one, he says, keep it simple. Keep the IT simple because when the crisis is over, the thing's gonna be torn down and likely the temporary IT infrastructure will be absorbed into a permanent framework. If leadership starts getting involved in this, you need to resist complicated multi-layer IT solutions. Number two, technology integration. He says, don't engage in ad hoc systems integration. This is no time for freelancing. I completely agree with that. It is very difficult to start standing up these integrations. They're tough on a good day. Try to do with freestanding solutions and workarounds for the time being. Reminds us about having uninterruptible power supplies. It's not sexy, it's not exciting, but it is vital basic infrastructure. Along with that is physical security. We talked before about the uh, cyber criminals that are out there. It is important to have a security plan. You don't want disruptors to be able to, dis to sow chaos. Uh, prepare for bring your own device because in emergencies, workers are gonna bring their own devices, including all kinds of phones, PCs, tablets, wireless lab and medical equipment. And you have to be prepared for how do you get those uh, devices accommodated. You need connectivity that's gonna be important. That is an area where I would work on, how do you get that tool integrated into your system so that you can have communication amongst your team. And this next one is collect just what is needed. For electronic health records, collect only the pertinent patient data for dissemination to authorities or to allied healthcare facilities. And keep in mind that these pandemic operations are essentially a triage and not meant to deliver a full range of medical care. So that's interesting, and it's been a discussion on AMDIS as well. 
I have not heard that anyone has loosened up on the requirements for what needs to be in a note to get paid. It's getting to the point that if the volume's too high, you're not being cared, you're not caring about getting paid, you're caring about taking care of patients, and the documentation will go by the wayside. And that may be what needs to happen. I would love to see the government suspend the documentation requirements that you have to count the number of elements in your review of system in order to get to a 99214. Forget that noise. You have patients to care for. But I haven't heard that yet. So keep in mind the financial impact. And if it does change, think about the note templates that you have that are designed to meet that 99214, pulling in all this junk, get it out of there, have your emergency templates ready to go in case your providers say, look, we no longer are worried about counseling the patient on smoking cessation right now. They're on a vent in an ICU. That's a good point. And particularly for nursing documentation, take a look at that because they're head to toe assessments. I have already heard the Joint Commission has given some indication that you can pare down their documentation requirements significantly. So what takes them usually an hour to check in a patient can be cut down dramatically. I hope you're all being safe. Be careful out there, conserve resources, and I'll speak to you again later in the week. That's our show for today. Thank you for listening to CMIO Podcast. I've been your host, Mark Weissman. Reach out to me on LinkedIn. You can go to the website at cmiopodcast.com. Send me your ideas for shows, guests you'd like to hear from, general feedback, or just to connect. And I look forward to bringing you our next episode.